in doing my, my research, I've always considered, even though I've been to the Mediterranean, I, I think of it as a watery graveyard. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Xavier Wingham, who is a PhD candidate at New York University, aka NYU, um, in the joint programme for History and Middle East and Islamic Studies. His research explores how changing Ottoman elite conceptions of race, slavery and blackness in the Ottoman Empire contributed to new forms of racialization of enslaved Africans between the 1840s and the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. Xavier's research has been supported by various fellowships such as Fulbright, Anna Med and Aritz. Xavier, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. It's no problem at all. Before we get started, I'm just going to give a full disclosure to the listeners, right? So Xavier gave us a load of um, resources to read through before this episode. <laughs> and I'm not being funny. After reading like just a, the, the stuff that Xavier sent over, which is obviously part of a wider, big canon of amazing scholarship, I feel like I know nothing about race. <laughs> like, I feel like I need to start again. It is so interesting. And this episode is basically going to be Tiso and Xavier talking about this incredible history and me asking some very basic questions. So bear with me. Uh, that's a lot of pressure there. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> a lot of pressure. This is amazing scholarship, man. And it's, it's an insight to a part of the world. Don't think many people have a kind of an insight to really. Uh, I started this kind of like project or at least kind of uh, series of projects uh, initially um, while I was doing a Fulbright in Turkey in 2015. Uh, I was there kind of like figuring out what is the, I don't know, the, one of the ways that I like have kind of thought about it was like, what is the place of the black body in Turkey? Um, how is it perceived? Um, I've been thinking about a lot of these questions particularly like thinking about questions of blackness, thinking about race um, in the U.S. I've been thinking about them in relation to Iran, um, particularly in filmmaking through film and thinking about slavery there. And because of my specialization or the way that I tended to specialize in Turkish and Ottoman history, I ended up digging more into the history of slavery in the Ottoman Empire, kind of like quote unquote found that there was a Afro-Turk association um, through reading of Mustafa Olpak's book, an, an Afro-Turk who started the Afro-Turk Association or Africa Lalar Dernii. It's kind of like through reading his memoir, when I finally completed it, I took this like random trip to Izmir um, or initially to Ayvalık, um, where the association, association was originally based. Um, didn't find it there, um, went to Izmir instead and kind of like, I don't know exactly how I found the place. Might have been Google Maps. Um, but I went there, I met Mustafa Opak and Shakir Dooler, who's the current um, chair of the association. Um, and we sat down and we had a conversation about like the African community. I met some students and things like that. And then eventually went back 
for a festival that's unique to the Africa community called the Calf Festival. And it's kind of from there that like things started moving forward that I started working with initially the um, Afro-Turk Oral History Project that Tari Vakfa, or the History Foundation, did. And then for my PhD re- research, I decided that I needed to uh, kind of move beyond the contemporary moment and move towards uh, the 19th century to think about the formulation or maybe maybe rather the processes around race and blackness and slavery. At the start of your research in 2015, what was your understanding of the black body in Turkey? How did you understand it then? Well, personally, because I had done a lot of traveling at that time um, from like various like cities. One thing about Turkey is that like it's really like that easy, but I guess it's kind of a lot more enjoyable to take the bus there as opposed to like the Greyhound in the U.S., or buses kind of anywhere else, maybe. I took a lot of buses and like, it was kind of like oddity or irregularity, maybe. Um, there's something mis- uh, skew about your presence almost. That was just kind of more so from a personal perspective that there was like always a lot, of, like you get a lot of attention, a lot of stares, but I didn't necessarily have a conceptualization of race in Turkey at this point. I didn't necessarily, I wasn't thinking about like this because you, as you study in Middle Eastern studies, you're told, or rather, um, there's two kind of ways that uh, this comes up. You're told that if you bring up the category of race, or if you talk about race, it's like, oh, this is like bringing up in this uh, particular instance, that's maybe interesting, but that's not necessarily the article or the work that you're t- we're talking about in course. Um, or you're challenged with the idea that you're importing American and or Western categories to think about race. Um, And so I didn't necessarily have my like wheels turning like, okay, this is race that we're thinking about. It's more so I was considering the ways that maybe perhaps other bodies are being perceived in the uh, kind of like day-to-day landscape of life. Obviously you being from the United States in a in, a in a different country, especially someone like Turkey, who has that kind of anti-imperialist rhetoric, especially around the US sometimes, like how you, as a black person and being from the US, how you would be uh, seen. That's what I was kind of kind of interested in it because I was like, obviously this is before you started doing your research and getting a bit deeper because it's more like on a personal level. So when I've traveled around Europe, sometimes you feel a sense of bordering, but it's not in the same sense that you have when you're traveling around, say if I've traveled around the rest of England or when I've gone to the United States, where I can feel there's a definite, that's a kind of racial bordering. But in that part of the world, I kind of sense it, but it's it's different. There's like this, like, not funny anecdote, but I always like to, it's, it's this game that I like to play. It's like, where are people going to guess where I'm from? Because that year, I just had so many people, like, that would, like, come up to me and be like, where are you, like, ask me, where are you from? And I would like, would, like they, would, they would guess that I got a lot of Latin America. But this one time I was in Amasia, um, visiting a friend and we were at the um, bus station and this guy asked where he's from and he's like oh I'm from the U.S. and then he's like what about your friend because I hadn't said anything at this point they're speaking in Turkish and he goes like he's also from the U.S. and he goes no you're from India and I was like what and so I get kind of like these random like it's it's always not necessarily a misidentification but it's it's curious in my mind where um, skin color is, I guess, where people map skin color onto these different kinds of places. In particular, the maybe like dissonance or inability to reconcile Blackness being located in the U.S. or being American and also Black. Maybe even on another level curious, 
if you think about the ways in which media and popular images of Black people circulate so easily, there's like, you know, everyone kind of like knows, um, or not everyone, I would say, rather that it's popular to know about basketball players or it's popular to know about um, these kinds of like pop figures. It's popular to know a vast array of people who are American who might easily more be identified with that. But once you remove like this blackness and then put it in a place like Turkey, it's the maybe unintelligibility of it sometimes um, or inability to reconcile. When you sent us over the bits about um, the Afro-Turks, like... I was so I was so excited reading about their lives because I just hadn't really I think I did know that there were black people in Turkey but I hadn't really sort of realized there was this kind of significant part of the diaspora there that sort of unintelligibility that that you're talking about like I'm part of that as well like I feel like I'm constantly unlearning racial categories but like thinking about the east like and how orientalism even sort of inflict how I see things and I try to be as critical as possible it's kind of sort of gives a real exemplification of how embedded these things are Savia, there's a certain way that you try to introduce the history of the Ottoman Empire and I wondered if you could do that for us just to get at our bearings or our groundings so the Ottoman Empire is an empire that expands rather 600 years of history. I won't go through all 600 years today. Kind of geographically to get our bearings, like one of the ways that we can think about it is that largest moment, or at least its most expansive moment, it encapsulated most of Southeastern Europe. Um, So you can think of like, it's kind of like the Ottoman Empire was uh, along the Adriatic Sea, kind of knocking on the doors of Venice and Vienna. Uh, A little bit east of that on the uh, Southern Mediterranean side, it included parts of North Africa extending all the way to Algeria. And then there's also large parts of the Middle East uh, or to what, what's now today known as, quote unquote, the Middle East um, that were incorporated into it, um, parts of the Arabian Peninsula, um, all along the Black Sea, uh, kind of like somewhere maybe like a couple hundred kilometers outside of Tabriz. As like if you kind of like look at a map, you'll see that like there's a very large amount of territory that this place covered uh, or that this Ottoman Empire occupied at the time. In the context of slavery, Ottoman slavery, in particular thinking about African slavery, the relationship between Africa and the Ottoman Empire kind of extends back to, um, or arguably extends as far back as Ottomans' conquest of Egypt in 1517. Um, Parts of the empire were incorporated, or parts of the continent were incorporated into the empire. And because of the existence of slave trade in the region um, and Islam's convention against enslaving those of the faith, um, Africa more or less became a casualty of uh, geography and a source for labor. I think that's a good introduction because I think it shows you in the empire, in that part of the world, there exists a framework of slavery already. Within this context of slavery already, there is other other groups being enslaved and have been enslaved for long periods of time. When we think of the transatlantic slave trade, we think of this kind of clear block. But this part of the world, a framework of slavery already exists. So... Africans and other groups are already in this already. So it's, it's not as clear cut. And in this kind of mess, we have to tease out what that means for black people in a different way than we do in the West. And on that point, that's actually, that brings me to a really good point about talking about Ottoman slavery. So like we know more or less what 
uh, or I would say that like many people are familiar with transatlantic slave trade and, um, and what slavery looks like, or at least what the institution looks like. When you come to the Ottoman Empire, it becomes more varied and you have to really take into consideration which kinds of categories of servitude or enslavement that we're, we're talking about, right? So in terms of the kind of like legal basis, or at least the basis for slavery, uh, shariat or like sharia provided much of the basis for rules and regulations regarding who could be enslaved. Um, in theory, it was uh, forbidden to enslave Muslims uh, and those non-Muslims who accepted the supremacy of Islam, um, who would become a protected minority by doing so. Um, Theory didn't necessarily always align with practice. The only legitimate means of enslaving a person in Islam was either through war or birth and slavery. And what's really interesting and important to note is that Sharia regulated status. It stipulated conditions for treatment of enslaved persons and the grounds for their manumissions under ill treatment. Manumission wasn't required, but it was recommended and this is like one of those kind of distinguishing factors between these kinds of two uh, quote unquote systems, right? In terms of the actual types of servitude, I have about maybe like four or so. There's the cull system, which is a military administrative servitude. Another element called defshirme, or it's a child levy, which was an induction on unmarried and able-bodied male children of the, Sultan, of the Sultan's Orthodox Christian elites, who mostly came from the Balkans. Um, this would be abandoned around the 17th century or so. There's also harem slavery, um, which many people might be familiar with, courtesy of highly orientalized European traveler accounts, kind of reproduces the oriental orientalism that we see today. Uh, eunuchs as well. So they occupied a really powerful position uh, in the Ottoman Empire's court, agriculture and industrial servitude. And then lastly, there was domestic slavery. Domestic slavery is the focus of my research. The Transatlantic Slave Trade focuses heavily on chattel slavery, whereas there's a mix of different types of slavery. There's indentured slavery, the indentured servitude in the East. And one of those categories is one, one of the, uh, what the far right used quite quite popularly to kind of say we had white slaves too. So you know the genitories the kind of soldiers when they kind of enslaved uh, people from the Slavic region into pressed them into being soldiers for the Ottoman Empire that's one of the kind of arguments that the far right you're saying listen white people were enslaved too but it's slightly different than translate slave trade yeah just on that point T I think I was thinking more particularly with the things that Xavier sent us sent over to us the ethnic mix of slavery within the Ottoman Empire and I know that's such a simplistic thing to say this was really interesting to me because you kind of see slavery coming through as something which isn't being reified through race however Xavier's research 19th century through the 20th century race is coming through in the Ottoman Empire which is really interesting because it's coinciding with the Europeanization of eugenics race science and seeing how that then became part of something that the people within the Ottoman Empire were considering and then acting upon I'm I'm being really kind I'm not I'm definitely not using the right words I'm using I'm sort of like speaking in a very like basic way about this very complex and important history but that is what kind of came through when I was reading yeah to T's point one I was like really curious about like this argument because I'd heard about it before right saying like oh my god we let 
there, there were white slaves too. What do you mean? And so I like did some digging because what else do you do on the internet during the pandemic? The book that they're relying on this from a scholar named Robert Davis, and he wrote an article. He was like surprised that people were using his work in that way because that's not how he intended it. Or the way that the right has kind of manipulated this information to then cancel out the kinds of claims that people on the quote unquote left, or at least people who are black, are then talking and having discussions about slavery. They kind of like want to equivocate these two uh, kind of like processes that unfold in such a way that create that have created uh, and institutionalized these systems of oppression um, that particularly target um, Black people and then also enfold other racialized minorities by nature of the system. So on that note, to then think about like, so like we let's move to the Ottoman Empire and think about um, kind of like, I guess, quote unquote race or think about um, slavery and wait, question whether or not it's racialized. So um, as I said, I particularly focus on the quote unquote blacks, uh, black slavery or African slavery for better uh, nomenclature. Um, and I think it's really important to mention that there's kind of like, a different kind of slippage that happens in the Ottoman Empire. According to historian Hakan Erdem, Ottomans were less sensitive about the um, ethnic and geographic origins of Africans, um, as opposed to those of enslaved, quote-unquote, white people. Um, so by the, quote-unquote, white people, we're thinking about Balkans, we're thinking about Circassians, um, that they tended to record the ethnic tribes. They tended to um, kind of take more detailed data as a, and this is in contradistinction to people who were simply grouped into these, or not grouped to, but I guess identified by two kind of large categories. One being Zenji, um, which we can talk about um, kind of later as a, a pejorative term and Arab, a meaning Arab. This is one of the ways that we can kind of also make a distinction between what's happening in the transatlantic context and the Ottoman context, because you have these two words that might seemingly, um, maybe in today's register, some people might create distinctions between these two, but the interplay and overlap between Zenji and Arab and the ways in which people were identified um, as, as either or the ways in which Arab marked blackness um, as opposed to marking something else that in other contexts in a later period during national uh, during the era of national uh, rising nationalism which is also to say today um, but during this like rise of nation states people would use Arab as an ethnic or a kind of racialized marker to then mean something completely different divorced from its articulation in the Ottoman period. Were those terms originally linked to negative association with blackness? Absolutely. I have looked at the Istanbul um, court records that in order to kind of like just peruse to look through and see where does Arab occur? And it occurs, I think maybe as like, or marking people as Siyah, uh, which means black, or Zinji, which is the pejorative term, or Habesh, or, uh, which is for Habeshistan or Ethiopia, um, or Arab, 
as early as like something like two, uh, twelve, like twelve sixteen, that these terms existed at this period. I can say yes, there's great work um, done by Aishigo Kayagil, who wrote this article where she talks about the ways in which Zenji is, is used as a pejorative term. So it's uh, thought of as kind of like dirty, um, it's unclean, kind of, it becomes this container for a lot of these ways, or many of the things that people would associate with blackness um, in other contexts that we might be familiar with. Um, in terms of the word adab, I don't necessarily know off the top of my head currently, but I would surmise and guess that it also shares similarities with that. Um, what is coming to mind currently is this character called Arabaja, which could be translated to Arab sister or Arab maid, um, and, or man, she's essentially kind of a mammy, mammy-like figure. Um, I'm hesitant to say mammy because I don't want to use the cat- that category because it already comes so loaded. Um, and I think that this figure, while having similarities, the ways in which it develops is different and the ways in which it comes to media sources. So like television and film is also similar, but there are dif- uh, differences, um, especially as you move from like the 1940s to era of, I would say, maybe like 1960s or so. When I was reading your work and one of the parallels I drew with the Mammy figure in the literature in the East is the idea of domestication. I think that's the closest parallel you can draw with them. Because like I said, it comes loaded up at times, but the idea of domestication tied to the idea of blackness being rooted to one space and doing kind of chores and work. And that's, that's what becomes clear when I'm looking at the notion of blackness in that context from your work. Yes, that's actually like kind of one of the ways that I, um, that we can like think about like what's happening in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. So like one of the questions that to like, I guess that I get asked, but also that I want to elaborate on a little bit more um, is why the 19th century? Like what, like you can pick any kind of century. If I've just talked about like slavery existing for like 600, like, you know, years and years or, you know, um, centuries at a time. What is it about the 19th century? Um, and so this is one of those moments in which we see, um, at least in the global scale, if we pull out a little bit, this is an abolitionary kind of moment. Um, it's the moment that like Britain is in everyone's business, more or less. And fr- France is like, you know, also kind of like doing the same. Um, so why do we see a rise in slave trade in the Ottoman Empire? Why do we see the such... A force. Um, And that's one of the questions that I'm also asking. We have some ideas about it now. One of those is that like there is a Egyptian occupation of Sudan in 1820. There's a reoccupation of Tripoli in 1835. And because of these kind of like two things, as well as a slew of other things that are happening geographically and geographically disparate places in the Ottoman Empire, such as like the Russian Empire and kind of encroaching throughout uh, throughout this period, there's a stronger link that's forged between the imperial center, Ottoman markets for uh, enslaved people. Enslaved people or enslaved Africans in the Ottoman Empire primarily were African women and girls. They labor, labored mostly as domestic servants and to a lesser extent in agricultural production. 
Over the course of the 19th century, some 16 to 18,000 enslaved persons were trafficked from Africa into the empire each year. During the same period, you would experience, the Ottoman Empire would experience multiple attempts at abolition, um, or at least stimming the slave trade or the trafficking of enslaved Africans. But none of that actually abolished the institution of slavery, if you can speak of a so-called institution. It didn't abolish the practice of it. Um, instead, you would go on to see that this would not happen, or at least some kind of like formal legislation would not happen around this question until well into the development of the, Repu uh, the Republic of Turkey. When you brought up the idea of the 19th century, as far as my understanding is, at this point, the, the Ottoman Empire is in terminal decline. Could it be argued at this point, they're still trying to get resources in, they're still trying to kind of compete to rebuild that empire, to kind of get back at its last, to no longer be the sick man of Europe. As we enter into the Republic stage, we had the development of a, a Turkish nationalism. So that's when I can't, well, from my understanding, that's where there would be a kind of a rooted attempt to get abolish it, to kind of appear different from your Western counterparts. This is like one of the like big preoccupations in the historiography, at least of like, the, or at least the earlier historiography was the question of like this decline thesis or paradigm. Like was what's happening with, with the Ottoman Empire, it was in decline at this period. I think I tend to kind of like not shy away, but I'm not necessarily interested in whether or not the Ottoman Empire was in decline. I don't think this is necessarily a kind of productive way to think about it, is thinking about the ways in which there were uh, also a concurrent series of reforms during this period. So in the Ottoman Empire, the period 1830s to 1880s is uh, known as the Tanzimat era reorganization, which variably aimed at governmental centra centralization, increased economic efficiency, uh, attempts at improving armies and quote-unquote modernization along Western European standards. In relation to enslaved people and enslavement, personal status law, which is the legal code under which enslaved people fell, remain unaffected by these reforms. You have to also consider that this is a period that like Ottoman elites are thinking about ideas of security, life, honor, property, and equality. And yet nothing kind of like substantially changes in this period for, or at least through these reforms for enslaved persons, because I'm still in the middle of my research. It's probably like interesting to note, I'll say at this point, the ways in which enslaved people are affected by, or affected or disaffected or unaffected by um, particular types of law, or at least rather how the material conditions through which they live are largely unchanged. So we, we can make this argument about the last attempt, quote unquote, abolitionary, uh, abolitionist legislation, such as the, what is it? It's the 1880 Convention on Slave Trade. This is between Britain and the Ottoman Empire. It more or less establishes a couple of things. It uh, establishes manumission. It, uh, gives Britain the right to search and seizure on the Mediterranean. So, you know, you said about Britain getting up in everyone's business, right, as we know. Why was Britain trying to get the Ottoman Empire to stop um, enslavement and to for their empire to collapse? One of the reasons why, like, Britain is, like, kind of like, they have these, uh, I guess, kind of like, you can say it's like the haunting of slavery, Right. Britain's quote-unquote consciousness is haunted by slavery and they're attempting to rectify these wrongs. Um, but one of the like 
you can call it maybe an anxiety Britain has at this time. Excuse me for all of the listeners. I am not like historian of British Empire. <laughs> but what happens is that there is a particular focus on African slavery. And a lot of the arguments that they're making is that so ingrained in the Ottoman Empire's life and way of style, it's Orient, the, the way that they talk about it is Orientalist in a, in a, in a way, because um, they're like, oh, it's so ingrained that it's never going to happen. This is because of their religion um, that they will never really relinquish, that it'll continue in, in intuity. And so they harp on this so much that there's a lot of back and forth between the two. It's not that the Ottomans are not responsive, because there's vast conversation about this. There's a really great book called, by uh, Hakan Erdem that focuses particularly on the, the politics, the discussion between Britain and Ottoman Empire, where as the kind of, on the Ottoman side of things, they're portraying elite enslavement as the only kind of slavery that they have. If I'm correct in my remembering of this argument. Um, so they, it's kind of like a, as, as we talked about these different kinds of modes of servitude, one gets articulated as the only kind of enslavement that exists. Um, while at the same time, Britain is trying to like target this one particular region or this one particular type of servitude. Now, don't get me wrong. There were concerns, particularly from places such as the U.S., about Circassians being enslaved. Um, there is a fabulous dissertation that I read on newspapers and like how people like the, how like news stories of Circassians being enslaved would appear in daily newspapers and people would write in and be like, oh my God, white people are being enslaved. What are we going to do about the Ottoman Empire? And like, of course, a lot of this is still rooted in this like idea of the sick man of Europe, Ottomans being despotic, um, kind of all of the tropes that you would kind of hear or think about or read about at this period or at least kind of like in British historiography maybe. And I would also like to add that Britain had an interest in ending the slave trade. It was the production of palm oil was, was the driving engine of the Industrial Revolution and Britain being the leader of the Industrial Revolution had the gunboat diplomacy attitude. So I'll go around forcing people to end slavery because it's no longer in my interest for this to carry on. They're emptying out the workforce of Africa so we need this to produce palm oil. There's this economic interest, but also, like Zephyr said, there's also an idea that Britain is the elite and the Ottoman Empire is despotic. Like their slavery is the dirty kind of slavery. They're backwards. Even how they talk about the royal family, they see the royal family as being backwards. There's a whole idea of seeing this person, the very orientalist view of the Ottoman Empire. And in the age of nation building and nations, Britain at this particular time, at this point in time sees itself as the number one. It goes beyond the America, how America sees themselves. Britain sees themselves divinely inspired to govern and run the world, enforce their will. A good example of this is how they force Zanzibar to comply with their idea of ending slavery. I think it's the shortest war in history, right? Ooh, I would not know that how how you would describe that. I've been thinking a lot about geography lately and the terms that we use, and I really need to dive into Sylvia Winter's essay. Um, on 1942 and like thinking about like her, her work on geography, um, particularly around terms such as the Arab world or the Middle East, for, because we know that like the Middle East, it's like question of like middle of what, east of what, but how do we kind of reorient ourselves in this geography is always a question, 
that I've had in the back of my head, but I think that maybe it's time to bring it to the front. So I can also put that in conversation with how we understand geography in relation to slavery. Of course, there's work that's been done on this, or at least um, around these kinds of questions, thinking about Catherine McKittrick's work. Like I would say arguably that there's definitely um, geographic tendencies or at least uh, a nod to geography in the ways that it plays a role in our lives and people such as like Sidia Hartman's work, thinking about Christina Sharp's work as well. These are just kind of the nods in which I'm like, because again, this is ongoing work for me, so I'm still unfolding in, in certain ways. By thinking about geography, I've been really interested in, in water, and a lot of my project centers around the Mediterranean. I would not say a lot of it, but I would say a major part of it focuses on the Mediterranean. It's interesting for me in the context of my project that the 1880 Convention for the Suppression of the Black Slave Trade um, manumitted enslaved Africans in the empire and offered the British uh, the British Empire mutual rights of search and seizure in the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, parts of East Africa, but not the Mediterranean. So this is in part, yes, I know, right? It's crazy. Um, so in part, they're like, you know, oh, we like want to like control everything that's going on here, but like in the Mediterranean, we're not necessarily going to surveil it in these kinds of ways. I wouldn't say that it's to perpetuate slavery or give it a loophole but I would say that it's interesting that this is one of those bodies of water that we're now seeing becomes such a critical place to think about in relation to refugees is where I'm getting at with this point. So if we like want to think about like the kinds of works of surveillance or unsurveillance that happens around slavery in this period and then think about it and connect it to the ways in which this becomes an over-policed body of water. I didn't know that about the Mediterranean. Like, that is just, that's mad. And then, yeah, so thinking about that now, I'm also thinking about Christina Sharp's work as well as you're talking. Yeah, sorry, going back to the point in terms of thinking about what you just said about refugees, it's like, what was the purpose of that, the missing surveil? It's like it could either be that you're you're creating a process of hyper-surveillance or you're creating a process of non-surveillance. It, whichever, whichever one it is or even if it's both of them it's pretty shocking and like almost seems very purposeful what was that act you said in 1880 yes convention for the suppression of the black slave trade it's the anglo-ottoman right. convention for the suppression of the black slave trade four years later you have the berlin conference right where they divide up africa right so these things are all very closely closely knitted together and with the unsurveillance of the mediterranean it allows europeans access all of them access to this place that they're all going to divide up and to the exclusion of the Ottoman Empire, who were previously in Egypt, right? Uh, who had been in Egypt. And at this pu- at this point in time, there's still like kind of like the like ghost of the Ottoman Empire, you could say, is in Egypt um, at this at this point in time. To add on to that, though, one of the reasons why I find Christina Sharp's work so important is because of the ways in which she connects the sea for me, or thinking about water. So there's this one quote that she has from Armstrong that talks about the history of insurance begins with the sea. The way that we can think about this history of insurance on water, connecting it to the ongoing crisis of capital and refugees that's going on today, that we can think about um, kind of like the Mediterranean as always, as um, always already a unmoored geography. In doing my, my research, I've always considered, even though I 
been to the Mediterranean, I, I think of it as a watery graveyard that is absolutely un, it's there are different kinds of geographies that we can get into. And this is like one of the great things that I love about the work that's happening on the Black Mediterranean now, that many people are paying attention to that within the context of Italy, for example. Um, and a lot of that research, I think, could be complementary, or comp- my research can be complementary to this, to extending that chronology and the geography in the ways that we think about the ongoing crisis is not just now, but always already happening, that it has been located, that it can be located um, by thinking about the Ottoman Empire in relation to what's happening in Black Europe or what's happening to Europe. Um, by focusing on enslaved Africa in the 19th century. For me, the Mediterranean represents antithesis of what Europe is. It shows you that Europe is fully connected, always has been and always will be. If you go from Carthaginian, Hannibal's Carthage to Rome, up into the Ottoman Empire, this the Mediterranean is the crossroads for all these empires, all these people moving across. So it shows you the kind of multi-ethnic, multi-racial character of Europe. And it moves us away from this idea that Europe, especially Western Europe, as being a white, a white space. The Mediterranean represents, I, I kind of guess in, in Gilbert's words, the true, the true meaning of roots is an R-O-U-T-E-S. So the movement of people back and forward, whether enslaved, whether refugees, whether as conquerors, it shows you that thing. And it, it gets away from those, those far right narratives or, or those, those nationalistic narratives that developed in the late 19th century. The Mediterranean is that space. I'm like so glad you're bringing this up and I love talking about this because like one of my favorite like kind of like quotes I have quite far too many and for like people like not on screen I'm like pointing to my like bookcase but Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism he talks about the Black Mediterranean as being a precursor to the Black Atlantic and I think that's such a profound point that like we need to sit with and like I am so happy to sit with it because to like ground us a little bit more, I found this one file and it was the first like file that I read um, as a part of like learning Ottoman Turkish. When I, uh, there's like two, pro- two part process, you like learn how to read the script and then you uh, learn how to read the printed script and then you learn how to read handwriting, uh, which is called Ruka. Weirdly fascinated by how many languages you need to like kind of do this project. So like I like on any given day I'm kind of like switching between Ottoman Turkish and Turkish. I use Persian in order to read the Ottoman um, because of the vocabulary. There's so much similarity. Um, there's also French that I come across. Um, there is uh, like I did not expect it, but German I also need to learn in order to read kind of the secondary literature. Um, so in part, part of my research focuses on, uh, Ottoman, uh, Ottoman Turkish literature in the 19th century. And some of the best work has been done by German scholars. And so while being in, I'm currently in Berlin and I've been here for the past kind of year or so learning German and, uh, slowly reading through that. Um, but there's just so much that you kind of need to like grapple through this project. Um, so to return back to this, the, the thinking about the Black Mediterranean and the Black Atlantic, there was this document that I found um, in 1847 that talks about a uh, unspecified Ottoman court in Istanbul who condemns a group of slave traders for the quote-unquote unspeakable, unspeakable suffering that a group of enslaved Black people were made to endure um, on their sojourn, sojourn from America to Tripoli. America to Tripoli! 
crazy. I like read that twice. I was like, am I reading this right? This can't be correct. Uh, but as far as I've been able to discover and like from other people reading it as well, this, it does say America to Tripoli. Um, and the court continues that, uh, like they were really incisive. They say that uh, while the Shariat made slavery permissible, there's also a command that enslaved people should be treated in a fatherly manner and that not someone who has even a little fear of God could act this way towards animals. Um, there's a lot that we can get into in this court document, and I find it super interesting that I have not been able to find more information as of yet on this case. Um, but what I find for the purposes of thinking about the Black Mediterranean is that this happens in 1847, and the in like thinking about the Central Mediterranean, the Mediterranean um, through Asiya Wadud's work, who's a um, po- who's a poet, uh, who's particularly writing about um, the left to die boat um, vessel that contains or that. Basically, there was a crossing on March 27, 2011, where 72 people were fleeing from Tripoli to Lampedusa, um, and they were known as the vessel, vessel as the Left to Die Boat. And she has a collection of uh, work, a body, a body of work called Syncope. And between this moment, this crossing, where these people are also suffering unspeakable kind, uh, kinds of like trials and tribulations, there's 164 years between these two events, or at least they connect the Mediterranean in two kinds of ways. But this is not the only way in which the Mediterranean has been connected to the Black Atlantic, quote unquote. Another way in which it's been connected um, is through geography. Like, or I guess, I don't know if that's quite right, the science term. Um, So in another one of my Google sessions, I was looking up like, okay, what's what's the kind of science behind this? What's the history? I think I was probably just reading the like Mediterranean Wikipedia. And I found out um, there's like an entire science, like scientific study that talks about the Messinian uh, salinity crisis um, in which the Mediterranean was disconnected from the world's oceans and it nearly evaporated. Um, and the only reason why we have the Mediterranean today is because Atlantic waters pour through what's now known as the Strait of Gibraltar and refill the Mediterranean. And so it's in these kinds of like very fascinating ways that like people want to kind of, they want to divide these kinds of these geographies. They want to understand them, uh, in kind of their own terms, which is perfectly okay. But I think we also have to attend to the ways in which these things cannot necessarily like there's an interconnected history that we need to interrogate as well i think you're 100 percent right i think it's again it's a form of orientalism that comes in where the, where the west tries to separate stuff so just like it's trying to separate western europe away from the balkans and eastern europe there's an attempt to kind of reify the mediterranean and it comes across in the textbooks from when you read about ancient history there's a kind of reification that it's a roman thing or it's a carthaginian thing or, or they try to link it exclusively to europe like it's the Mediterranean Sea that Europeans try to fight, they battle over for kind of supremacy and they leave off all of North Africa. Or they don't even talk about how the Arabs use it, Arab expansion during the early days of Islam. They talk about in terms of that they use the land bridges rather than the Mediterranean themselves. And they talk about, when they talk about the Ottomans, they talk about their kind of lack of proficiency in the sea. 
in earlier documents. A kind of claiming by the West of the Mediterranean is it's our thing. When it's not, it's an interconnected thing. And it's interconnectedness that shows that it pokes holes in this idea of like nations. But I can see why they're rested in it because nation building becomes a project of the late 19th century, right? Yes. One of the things that like becomes a maybe not disciplinary, I guess kind of disciplinary source of exhaustion, maybe. I don't know what kinds of like moods that I'm feeling in terms of uh, descriptors. But one of the things that I encounter a lot is the attempt to distinguish transatlantic slave trade from Ottoman slave trade. I think that this is both a valuable task because there is, as some might say, a quote-unquote tyranny of the transatlantic slave trade studies in terms of it always has to be the thing that we compare it to, um, as opposed to thinking about things that might be a little bit more similar, such as the Indian Ocean world, thinking about the Ottoman, there are resonances in between those two or elsewhere in the globe. But I think rather than necessarily outright negate the kind of relationship between the two, I think we should think of the, think about these two in terms of relation to take a relationary approach to, between what's happening here. Like I said in the beginning, like, of course, we can note that there are definite distinctions. And that's what, one of the reasons as to why I am attempting to be hesitant in my terms and my scholarship and uh, in my speech about how I talk about my, my subject, because if you're reading people, take for instance, just someone that's always on my mind, Cydia Hartman's work, you understand that there are particular processes that are unique to the American situation, but something such as, uh, such as the Ottoman Empire, if we're thinking about kind of like these pamphlets and things that were educating people on how to like be a proper citizen, how do you be a proper moral person? These kinds of literature, as far as I know, didn't necessarily exist. I can't necessarily wholesale adopt the arguments. I can't necessarily wholesale adopt these kinds of things because there are different processes that go into this. In particular, it does not necessarily map onto everyone who might be understood as Black in the Ottoman Empire. Because, as I said earlier, you have different modes of servitude that then force us to think about ways in which power um, are kind of like mediated by the processes of racialization that happen. Amazing. Xavier, that was incredible. Thank you so, so much for educating us sharing your scholarship like that is incredible and we're so excited to see what you do by the time you get to the end of your thesis like this is just and I really love how much you spoke about this being an ongoing process and I think one of the things that me and Tiso love on the show is when scholars come on and are very are hesitant and uncertain about what they think because we should always be like that. We should always try to be thinking about our thinking, both in relation, but also as ongoing and in development. That's why this conversation for us will be exceptionally powerful. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed it. Xavier, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Listeners, we'll be back again next week. Patrons is another episode for you over on the Patreon now. And yeah, goodbye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. 
you can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 